Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man the Dallas Cowboys drafted out of Little Langston University in Oklahoma with the 18th pick in the first round of the 1975 NFL Draft. Two short years later, he started all 14 games for the Cowboys, involved into a star linebacker delivering highlight reel hits, creating turnovers, three interceptions, and helping the Cowboys win Super Bowl 12, 27-10 over the Denver Broncos. His post-football career is just as impressive as after hitting rock bottom when his addiction to cocaine led him to a path that ended with him being sent into prison in June of 1984. There he began the steps to becoming clean and sober, which he has now been for 37 years. He's the author of two books, Out of Control, Confessions of an NFL Casualty, and In Control, The Rebirth of an NFL Legend. He is a two-time winner of the Texas State Lottery. It is a pleasure to welcome a member of the Dallas Cowboys <laughs> Super Bowl twelve championship team, one of my favorite players from the mid-70s, number 56 in your program, Thomas Henderson. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it, um, it's a huge thrill for me because, you know, back in Mark, the day, you were it, man. Mark, Mark has been talking about this all week. This is AJ <laughs> Thomas. He's, he's looking forward to this. We're looking forward to a great time with you. Yeah. So it's interesting because you started your football career at the old Anderson High in Austin, Texas, the same school where Dick Night Train Lane got his start. The school has historic significance. It was Austin's only public African-American high school. It was constructed in response to a growing African-American population and a national and local threat to segregated schools. What do you remember about your time at Anderson? Well, I went there one year. Um, you know, I went, you know, the normal course of junior high to high school. And so I lived in that community. So I spent my sophomore year at Anderson High School in Austin, Texas, I was a tailback uh, on the junior varsity. And so my football uh, attributes uh, were later, like, you know, like my senior year in high school. Well, so you moved to Oklahoma City during your junior year, but Oklahoma had a rule that out-of-state kids would not be eligible to play the first year of transfer. So what was that first year where, where you're starting to come into your own as a football player, yet you have to sit out and you, you can't play football? Well, I worked at the post office and played basketball my junior year. And, you know, I thought the sit out was was not right. Uh, I left a real tough you know situation, a very, very poor family, you know, a family who seldom had toilet paper. So when when I went to Oklahoma, I had a grandmother, which really really wasn't my grandmother, but she was wonderful, that took me in and I just started over in Oklahoma. I was a I was a street kid. I was a hustling kid, a pool, played pool for money, played pool with grown ups at you know, two or three o'clock in the morning for quarters or dollars. And, the, you know, they were drunk and I wasn't. And so it was <laughs> pretty slim pickings. <laughs> so when you think of high school football, 
you immediately think of Texas, you know, Friday Night Lights and, and all of that. From what you were able to see as a high school student, how different was the level of high school football in Oklahoma compared to Texas? I think Oklahoma was pretty equal. You know, with the University of Oklahoma there in Norman, which is only 30 miles from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma State, University of Tulsa, I literally had never heard of Langston University before I knew who they were. I mean, it was literally that summer um, after graduation where I turned 18 years old in 1971, and I was 1A for the Vietnam draft. And so I'm about to get drafted. And before that summer, that spring, my guidance counselor called me to her office and she apologized. She says, I'm so sorry. I didn't catch this. You made an F in geometry in Austin your sophomore year. You need that geometry to finish high school. That little mishap kept me out of Vietnam. That's a great story. That is a great story. See, I had to go to summer school in order to finish high school. So I went from 1A to 1S, which was school. Unbelievable. So you had a very special relationship with the head coach there, Donald Earl Burns Sr., who tragically died as a victim of the Oklahoma City bombing where he worked as a construction analyst for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. His widow actually called upon you to deliver his eulogy. What did you learn from your time under Coach Burns about football as well as life? Well, the first thing I learned is I was not a quarterback. Um <laughs> uh, I, I just told him, he said, you know, what was, you know, what did you play in Austin? I said, quarterback. He says, hey, g- give me a ball. And they, they threw him a ball. He gave me the ball. He said, throw the ball. And I threw a duck. <laughs> he says, you're no quarterback. You're going to play defensive end. And and that's where it started. So so in your senior year, you grew from 5'10 to 6'2. You got up to 200 pounds back then. You start to dominate. Your name to the all-city team you ended up at the historic Langston University. What are some of the other schools that recruited you, and why was Langston your final choice to go? Well, the true story is Marshall lost their whole football team in 1970. And so I wrote this letter, begging letter. I'm a football player in Oklahoma City. I made all city. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm six two, two ten. You know, and I got a dear John back from Marshall. And so, you know, you have to realize if I can't make a team that nobody's on, um, it was pretty difficult time for me. And at the last minute, a friend of mine just, just a line came out of his mouth. He said, "Why don't you go up to Langston?" And I go, "Oh," and so it's late. You know, it's, it's you know it's mid-August, and I hitch a ride to Langston, and the coach up there said, "Oh, I know who you are. Barry Switzer talked to you, talked to, to me about you, and so you were a hell of a prospect, you know. And uh, he didn't think you had the grades to come to Oklahoma, but you know that wasn't true. And so Barry Switzer, by the way, you know, every time I see him, he says, "I missed you. I missed you." Um, so I went to Langston on a Tuesday. I was in Frankfort, Kentucky that Saturday, starting a defensive end. <laughs> the, 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 the starting defensive end broke his ankle on Wednesday, and I kept his job for four years. 
That's incredible. It, it's so strange that you married, um, mentioned Barry because 1975, you know, OU won the national championship. Your Langston team, I think, went something like one and nine, but yet you're the first player from Oklahoma to be taken in that NFL draft. Um, yes. So, you know, so shame on Barry. But what do you remember about draft day? And more importantly, you mentioned, you know, uh, the woman who, you know, you, you referred to as your grandmother. Uh, that's Nettie Mae Higgins. You know, it was very important to her after the draft when you were flying to Dallas for her to accompany you to the airport. So much, in fact, that she basically was bedridden for a while, but she had a, a, a ruptured sciatic nerve and she fought through the pain of that to accompany you to the airport. So what do you remember about draft day and about that day, you know, heading to the airport? Well, I had to get from Langston to Oklahoma City to her house, first of all. Um, I was asleep. And my roommate woke me up and said, Cowboys on the phone. So you have to realize the NFL draft was not on television. It was not on radio. Uh, It was the NFL looking at college football players. And so I get a phone call. It was Gil Brandt. I called him back because I had been out for a run. And he says, uh, Thomas Henderson, you're a Dallas Cowboy. And I didn't know, you know, that I'd been picked the 18th pick or whatever it was. And he says, uh, how, how long would it take you to get to the airport? I said, well, I'm about 40 miles from the airport, of, you know, a couple of hours. And he said, okay, there's a ticket waiting for you. And so I hung up the phone and I ran out in the pasture. I just was running as fast as I could. And it was just a release. Uh, I had really worked hard, uh, dogged as it was, to to, to be a, a great football player. Now, keep in mind, I worked offshore in the Gulf of Mexico the summers of 72 and 73. And I went out there, sort of olive oil, and came out of there Popeye. <laughs> okay. And so... A lot of the strength and a lot of me taking on tackles and guards and fullbacks all leads back to my career as a roughneck. And so that's that's the basis of that story. Yeah, I remember how such a physical presence you were. In, in 1975, you joined the Cowboys, who had had nine straight winning seasons, eight playoffs in the last nine years, a Super Bowl win. What's that first training camp like, surrounded by some of the biggest names in the NFL and that winning tradition that comes with being a Dallas Cowboy? Well, I mean, you know, back in those days, the Dallas Cowboys, even all teams, would have over 100 uh, tryouts. You know, you had your draft choices and then, you know, just, you know, a dorm full of free agents. And, um, and so... For two weeks, you're competing against, you know, free agents and all rookies, mind you. But so you don't know who anybody is for the first two weeks. And then here comes these guys, you know, Ralph Neely and John Fitzgerald and Roger Starbuck and, you know, you, you know, Blaine Nye and John Nyland and Billy Joe Dupree and Drew Pearson and Harvey Martin and Two Tall Jones. You know, it's just it's a, it's overwhelming when 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 the boys uh, you know come to training. But by the time they got there, I had already uh, won Tom Landry's uh, doubts. 
Now, he picked me because Red Hickey, Tank Younger, legendary Tank Younger from Grambling University, they watched me play. I ran a 4-4 and a cow pastor with converses on, you know, no traction. And so the Rams were going to take me 25th. But even with all that said, Tom Landry still had questions about, you know, coming from a small school. We didn't have a great year my senior year. But on one day in training camp, when the veterans were in, I'm a rookie. So Tom Landry took a moment. And it, it was the only moment of my entire five years with him. He says, Thomas, come here. He says, listen, this is goal line. And I'm so I'm working my offense here. And he put me in a, the up back position at a linebacker. He said, the play goes that way, you go through that hole. He said, if it goes that other way, you loop around. I said, okay. And so the film is rolling. It's the, it's the veterans against, you know, rookies, basically. And they started to play. And I almost killed Robert Newhouse in the hole. And I ran back to Landry. This is one of those moments, like a kid. And I, I kind of like, I said, sir, like that? He goes, he shook his head. He goes, yeah, just like that. <laughs> you know, I, I had knocked Robert Newhouse's helmet off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this was actually pretty much of a watershed year for the Cowboys, preparing to move on from that group of players to the next group with younger players. And you're one of 12 Cowboys rookies that year who were part of the rebuild. And that group would include six future pro bowlers, including yourself. And you nicknamed yourself the Dirty Dozen. How did that nickname come about? Well, you, when you're a rookie with the Cowboys, you have to shave. You, know, you have to come to training camp shaven. And I broke the rule. Um, and so and so we all, you know, had these beards. And then, you know, Landry made them cut them all off. I went to a dermatologist and he said I had pseudo full of follicles or something <laughs> and that I couldn't shave. And so and so when the guys could grow their beards back and, you know, boy, it was ugly. You know, some guys' beards weren't full. And and so we all looked, you know, the 12 of us, uh, about 10 of the 12 had these scruffy beards. And yeah, I think it might have been Frank Luxa, uh, longtime colonist for the Times-Herald that uh, coined that phrase, the dirty dozen, because we looked a mess. So two years after your rookie year, you're named the starting strong sign linebacker over Randy White, who was moved to defensive tackle. You posted 53 tackles, three interceptions, one sack, and two fumble recoveries, as well as returning an interception for a 79-yard touchdown against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Cowboys make it back to the Super Bowl. You lead the team with seven tackles in Super Bowl twelve. Looking back on that season and the way you performed in the Super Bowl, what is it that stands out most to you? Well, the team. Uh, what stands out most is Tony Dorsett, Roger Staubach, Drew Pearson, Billy Joe Dupree, just just the whole team. Because when you win a championship, it's barely about you. It's about an effort of, you know, those starting 20, 22 guys that make it happen Sunday after Sunday and sometimes on Monday uh, that, that gets a team uh, to the Super Bowl. 
1977, after a pick six against Tampa Bay, you spiked the ball over the goalpost crossbar, essentially creating the touchdown celebration. So when you look back at all of the crazy end zone dances and other celebrations today, how do you feel about what you did? And how do you feel about the NFL's effort to control celebrations today? Well, I mean, you know, you, you can't go overboard with it. But, you know, I, I may have been, you know, besides Joe Namath, I may have been the first African-American guy to market himself um, as an individual. I mean, I was a Dallas Cowboy, but I knew that my career as a football player, you know, could have lasted 10 years maximum the way I played because I was crazy. I loved collisions. And and so I wanted to be an actor. You know, I wanted to do something else beyond football. So that, if you think about the 10 years, if you can play 10, some guys play 15. If some guys play, you know, Brady is off the charts. Um, but I thought I had 10 years and I better let everybody know who I am. And the Cowboys really didn't like that. And I didn't understand why they had such a problem with it, but uh, some did. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I think that is, you know, back in that era was when things started to change, whether it was because of Muhammad Ali, um, you know, Joe Namath, you mentioned in other sports, uh, you know, maybe Derek Sanderson in hockey. But I vividly remember and we didn't have the media and we didn't have all the games that we do today. But I, I always remembered, you know, Billy White Shoes Johnson, you know, and you and Mean Joe Green. And it was just yeah. the personalities. It was when the NFL right. started gaining personalities. Of course, Mean Joe Green, remember for the Coke commercial. Right. Also, that's, but, that's the one. But it's also interesting, too, because over the years, Coach Landry's reputation has certainly tarnished a bit. Some of the books, such as Herb Adderley's uh, book, Paint Him as Borderline Racist. You had you mentioned about the beard. You had a few run-ins with Coach Landry, ranging from the very first time you met him, you, because with the beard, as well as him not starting you because you missed a practice because of the flu. How tough was it for him to play for him, given you know you have that over-the-top personality, and and the Cowboys were everything but that. And have you ever wondered? Had you played maybe for the Oakland Raiders, uh, a team that was just full of those type of personalities, or, or the Steelers, if your career might have been different? I think it would have because, you know, Landry uh, complimented me once in my entire career. All those big plays you saw and all that, the game, he, the only game he ever complimented me in front of the team, because that's where he did it. You know, he'd say Drew had a great game or Roger really, or Newhouse or Too Tall or Harvey Martin or Randy White. You know, he would really go. He even said, he prefaced his compliment to me. It was, um, let's see, what year was that? Oh, it was 78. And we were playing the New England Patriots, and they had a guy named Russ Francis. And Skip Bayless had read a, written a column about how great Russ Francis was. And he ended the column by saying, if you don't think he's great, watch him drag Hollywood around Texas Stadium Sunday. 
Well, the first play of the game, I hit Russ Francis in the chin with my helmet. And I owned him for four, four quarters. He was dodging. I mean, he was looking for a bomb every play. So I misused him. I made about eight tackles, tackles for loss, and just played a, you know, and everybody knew that Skip Bayless had made that comment. Well, Coach Landry comes into the Monday meeting after that game, and he, he says this, and it was like, what? He says, well, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, congratulate Thomas on a great game. And everybody snickered. Everybody laughed. Everybody laughed. And then Landry said he played great. Best game he's ever played for the Dallas Cowboys. And, and, And then he said Thomas Henderson is a pro. That was it. That was the only compliment that I got from him in my five years. And then things come to the, that boiling point with Coach Landry in 79 during the 12th game against the Redskins. Cowboys are being beaten 34-20, national television. You're seen on camera displaying handkerchiefs with the Cowboys team logo. When interviewed about it, you said that teammate Preston Pearson um, had asked you to show off the handkerchiefs with Pearson was marketing as a favor. Coach Landry was so angered by the episode that after threatening to waive you, he instead deactivated you for the remainder of the season by placing you on the injured reserve list. Did you ever talk directly with Coach Landry about that? And what is then your initial reaction when you're traded away prior to the following season to the 49ers? Well, let me tell you what happened there. Um, uh, he put me on waivers. Well, we had a meeting. And during the meeting, I MF'd him cussed him, told him to do himself. And so the meeting could have went better. (laughs) (laughs) You think? (laughs) And and I was full of cocaine. Uh, I powdered up for this meeting because when I got the call, his secretary said, coach wants to see you. In my five years, he never wanted to see me, never said a damn word to me. But all of a sudden, he wants to see me, and I go, "Well, I'll see him at the field, at the practice." She says, "No, he wants to see you in his office." And I said, oh, "Okay." So I loaded up with cocaine, and that meeting could have went so much different. But yes, Preston Pearson, you know, had asked me to, you know, advertise his towel, and I did it, and I did it, you know, while we were losing, and me and Jerry Tubbs got into a you know, verbal confrontation. But I still never told anybody that it was for Preston. Um, And so, you know, bad timing uh, for a good cause. So you you mentioned that before you met Coach Landry, you you cocained up. How bad was your addiction at that point in your career? It was was bad. I wouldn't call it, it was a bad habit at that point hadn't become what I would call an addiction. Uh, it was just a bad habit. Um, but yes, and, and you know, Dallas, uh, Texas in the 70s, it was a lot of cocaine. <laughs> and uh, I had my shares of it, and, and I wish I hadn't. So your playing career ends a few years later in a preseason game 
when you suffered a neck injury. What do you remember about that play? Did you know immediately that that meant the end of your playing days? Yeah, you know, the running back for the Kansas City Chiefs, Crudip. I think he drowned uh, some years yeah. later. Um, yeah, it was a throwaway play. The, the pile was falling toward me, and I, you know, I punished people. So I just stuck my head in there and broke my neck. And it wasn't spectacular. You know, I walked off the field, and I, I, I think I finished the game. I don't remember. Um, but that next morning, I wake up um, in, on, a, on a college campus, and I can't move. I can't get out of bed. But it's more pain than lack of feeling. And uh, they call an ambulance. They took me down the stairs in a stretcher and, you know, had me bolted down. And after a, a CAT scan, it was C1, cervical vertebrae number one. You know, I should be in a wheelchair, um, you know, lucky, you know, <laughs> you know, lottery lucky that I don't lose my legs. So, so just four years after your football career has ended, seven years after your Super Bowl win, at the age of 31, you're sentenced to prison. What are some of the thoughts that are going through your head during the trial and sentencing in that first night in a cell? Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because um, my daughter one time asked me because she was getting teased at school. And she says, what did you do? And she ran upstairs. And I told, uh, and I didn't say a word. And I haven't said much about it because it, it will sound like a, an excuse. And I'm not really good with excuses. I don't remember. Um, I with Richard Pryor. I started drinking 151 rum because it was the only beverage around when I was smoking crack, and we were lighting the torch with the 151 rum and smoking the crack, and lighting the crack the the torch with the 151 rum and and smoking the crack, and. At the end of it, because you always ran out, you know, I was not a Colombian drug dealer. I, I, you know, I ran out. And so I started drinking 151 rum. Um, this was a, something Richard Pryor had turned me on to. He said, it'll bring you down. But it'll also black you out. You know, because it's flammable and it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's heavy. And. And so I have to be honest with you. I've never had talked about this, but 82, I don't remember. Um, 83, most of it, I don't remember. Um, because when I went to get a couple of ounces or uh, three or four ounces of cocaine, I would also buy large quantities of 151 rum and cotton swabs and ear ear swabs uh, to to light my cocaine and drink the you know the 151 rum is what Richard Pryor poured over his head and lit a match oh, yeah. and he doesn't remember doing that so 
so I don't know. I don't remember 82. Interesting. And, 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 and maybe that's maybe that's a good thing. So, you know, what so I assume this is something you would remember. What is the what do you think the most important thing you learned about yourself during your time in prison? And what did Dr. Joseph Perch mean to your recovery? Well, the acknowledgement that I was an alcoholic. Um, that's a simplifying and, uh, and a drug addict and the liar and a cheat and all that. But just that I was an alcoholic, um, kind of hard to say you're an alcoholic, but until it brings, you know, you joy and happiness and sobriety and love and family and friends and good living and, and that's what sobriety has brought to me. Um, Dr. Joe Persh, um, he passed away a couple of months ago. And I went out for his, um, his uh, celebration. Um, you know, he, he sat with me in his office. Uh, you know, he's the big time psychiatrist. And he said, Thomas Henderson, you're an alcoholic. And I didn't like that at first, but uh, what is it now? What is it, September? So for 37 years and 10 months, I haven't had a drink or a drug. And I'm proud to say Thomas Henderson is a recovering alcoholic. It's actually 13,830 days, exactly. You know, you started writing your first book while in prison using telephone privileges to call in your notes. What made you decide to start writing the book and how did it morph from being a, a tell all about the NFL to being a tell about me book? Well, it was about, it was my story. And even while writing that story, the, you know, my, my co-writer would, you know, say what happened that night or what happened in Houston, what happened in San Francisco when you were playing for Bill Walsh? I couldn't remember stuff. I was teammates with O.J. Simpson in 1980 with the San Francisco 49ers. Joe Montana was a rookie in 1980. And I don't, you know, I couldn't find my house. We, I bought a condo in Redwood City, but I couldn't find that house. I, I bought a house in Houston because I played that end of the uh, we, Oilers went to the playoffs and we lost to the Raiders. I I, I don't remember where that house is. Uh, you know, I don't remember what happened to that furniture. I, and and so uh, being in and out of consciousness, I tell you what I did one time. I went to a, a strip club on the way home one night and I drank four beers and I got drunk. And, you know, I drove home, went, went to that same place Ten days later, and I walked in. I said, God, I have a gin and tonic. They said, we don't serve alcohol. I said, what do you mean? I, I, I got drunk over here the other night. He said, that's near beer. <laughs> wow. It's unbelievable. So, you know, it's interesting because years later in 1997, uh, well into your sobriety, you wrote a remarkable open letter 
to the readers of the Dallas Morning News in which you apologize for your past behavior and everything that surrounded your arrest. Three years after that letter, you'd be in the news again as on the way home one night in 2000, you stopped at a drugstore to pick up antibiotics, cough medicine, and left with $100 in lottery tickets. The next day, you learned that you won $28 million in the Texas State Lottery. And it's interesting because you celebrated by purchasing a sausage and egg biscuit, powdered donuts, and a pint of milk at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> so the question is, and, and this will be the only time I'm going to refer to this name because I, I know that you were very adamant about that Thomas Hollywood Henderson died in 1983. But what would have that celebration looked like had you still been Thomas Hollywood Henderson? Yeah, I have this picture of uh, in the mountains of Colombia, Medellin, uh, <laughs> with, with uh, 55 gallon drums of cocaine, pure cocaine, and 55 gallon drums of, <laughs> of, of, of 151 rum, oh, and, and these tiki torches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, as I mentioned, today marks your 13,830th day of sobriety. You travel the world sharing your story. You've become a, computer, uh, a community philanthropist in your hometown. You're the founder and chairman of ESYSSO. You built and restored a stadium complete with an eight-lane track, all for the recreational enjoyment of the East Austin youth. You're also the president and owner of Thomas Henderson Films, an educational video distribution company that provides the incarcerated community with information on prevention, recovery, and sobriety. Uh, you've devoted your post-prison life to the prevention of substance and alcohol abuse by helping the community understand that sobriety is an option. Um, so we, we urge people to go out to your website, number one, and I want to thank you so much for your time tonight. I've always was impressed by what you did on the field, but it pales in comparison what you've been able to do off the field and turning your life around. And, um, you know, we're just grateful that you joined us tonight. Well, it was a, a, a well-studied interview. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, you know the facts. Um, and to anybody who hears this, who has thought about quitting drinking, who has had a few blackouts where you don't remember what you did the night before, um, that you can be clean and sober one day at a time. Awesome. The one and only Super Bowl champion and more important life champion, Thomas Henderson. Thanks so much, Thomas. Be well. Hey, you know what? I, I just came from the grocery store, and I looked up at my clock when the phone rang, and it was 610. <laughs> It's been a while. I barely made time. it. <laughs> I want to tell you, I just, I just walked in the house from the grocery right store. Right. Six ten, my phone was ring, ring. <laughs> perfect. Uh, perfect. Right, I'm sure you, you probably picked up an egg and biscuit it's sausage right. sandwich. <laughs> did you wait a bit? More importantly, no, did you cake. wait, 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 wait? Did you buy a lottery? Did ticket? you buy a lottery ticket? That's what we want to know. I did. I did. <laughs> All right. So we expect to hear from you tomorrow, and we want part of the winnings. <laughs> That's right. Be here. Y'all call me back. Okay? You got it. Be good. Thomas Henderson.